Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and today I'm joined by two Times columnists, Rachel Sylvester and Helen Rumbelow, and also by one of our political correspondents, Lucy Fisher. And here are our topics for this week. As the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU looms closer, the out campaign is beginning to take shape, but its proponents now face a number of tough questions. Who to lead them, with whom to ally and what strategies to pursue. The right business chiefs must be recruited, Tory Eurosceptics and UKIP must calculate how closely to embrace each other, and theoretical reasoning about UK sovereignty must be carefully balanced with more tangible arguments about the impact of immigration. Labour is speaking in code as it launches its leadership contest. Aspiration, equality, responsibility, choice, Blairite, Brownite, these are words used to signify a political direction rather than simply to communicate. The party has to face up to electoral reality and go back to celebrating success, even if that means some people doing better than others. Flexible working the male way. Ask forgiveness, not permission. A survey today shows a tiny fraction of high-quality jobs are possible to work flexibly. Interesting, as a new study of an American consulting firm shows that men, much more than women, did work flexibly, but just lied about it. This means they didn't get punished, as the more dutiful and rule-abiding women did in their performance review. Life lessons for us all. Well, those are our topics. Um, Let's start with you, please, um, Lucy Fisher. We're meeting on Tuesday, just after probably David Cameron's most difficult day since he was re-elected about uh, a month ago. And without getting into the detail of that, you want us to think slightly more broadly about the shape of the of the no campaign in particular. And you look at the opinion polls, if we're allowed to look at the opinion polls after their performance in the general election, and the in campaign, staying inside the EU, is beginning to build up quite a strong lead some opinion polls even sort of 20 25 points um ahead so the no campaign needs to get organized quickly if they're going to turn this around yes that's absolutely right there's two reasons it's um it's important for this to take shape quickly the first like you say uh, is speed because cameron has cleared the way for the referendum to possibly be held as soon as next may so they need to get cracking and the second reason uh, these questions are becoming more important is because the advantages accruing to the in-campaign are also growing. We've seen the Prime Minister 
potentially uh, looking to scrap the 28-day PERDA, which would mean that the in campaign would have all the benefits of the civil service uh, and public money to sort of drive propaganda calling for Britain to stay within the EU. Also, a lot of, a lot of Tory MPs are unhappy about that, aren't they? And are going to try and amend they're the going legislation to try and amend in the House of Commons. Uh, today, Tuesday, in, in the Commons with the uh, second reading of the EU referendum bill. But also the question that has been chosen is biased according to some Eurosceptics. It's asking whether Britain should remain in the EU rather than be in the EU. And a Comrades poll yesterday shows that uh, support for remaining in the EU goes up when the question is loaded in that sense. How much does a difference does the question make? Does, does, do we know? We do. So the Comrades poll yesterday showed that if Brits are asked whether to be in the EU or out, 51% say in and 33% say out. And when asked to remain, uh, remain or leave the EU, the support for staying in goes up. It rises to, I believe, 58% uh, and leaving goes down to 31%. So that's a massive difference. That's a huge difference. 27% to 18%. It's extraordinary. Mm. Perhaps, I suppose, as the campaign gets underway, though, people will be focused on what the real underlying issues are and maybe as their mind, it wouldn't make quite so much difference. But that is an interesting contrast. And what is the position of UKIP? in the out campaign because Nigel Farage has been very voluble he's already out there making making the case a lot of Tory skeptics a lot of Tory outers are worried about Nigel Farage contaminating the whole out message because of his sort of emphasis on anti-immigration there's remarks about HIV AIDS during the election campaign that somehow if he's the face of the out campaign it's in trouble Absolutely. And, and Nigel Farage seems to have done a second U-turn recently uh, on Saturday, having said before that, of course, he wouldn't expect to lead the campaign and that it should be someone from business. He came out and said, actually, no, you keep going to get cracking and I'm the right man to pioneer the out campaign. But I think a lot of Tory Eurosceptics are concerned. They... Uh, say that UKIP's 4 million voters are already set on out. They don't need to be won over. And like you say, his perhaps more extreme or sensationalist language could alienate other voters from voting out. Mm. So that's a big question, how closely the Tories work with UKIP, whether they pursue different campaigns or try and join forces and um, collate their ideas. Rachel Sylvester, Nigel Farage has a point there, doesn't he? If no one else is going to lead the out campaign, someone might as well get on with making the, the message. And the Tories or Eurosceptic business, they're, they're certainly not very quick off the mark so far. No, I think what's fascinating about this week is it's shown how potentially disastrous and toxic this whole thing can be for Cameron. You know, he's had his first big test, which is at the summit at the weekend, and he ended up with this completely garbled message about whether cabinet ministers were going to be fired if they campaigned on different sides of the question. And I think the, the sort of big issue over the next year or two years, depending how long the thing runs, is how much damage this can do to the Conservative Party. You know, we've had successive leaders absolutely held to ransom by their Eurosceptic backbenchers mm. over Europe. And David Cameron, the problem is he looks he's looked indecisive already and weak already when what he needs to do is look strong. 
So I think that he will be kind of really worried about that and, and I think he should be. And it's a question of sort of trying to get the political Conservative Party show back on the road as well as the kind of campaign. Do you think the Conservative Party looks, we'll come on to the Labour Party when we come to your topic, but do you think the Conservative Party looks across at the uh, opposition parties, Labour completely immersed in a, a leadership election, uh, the SNP representing seats that the Conservatives probably won't ever expect to win, the Liberal Democrats down to eight, and it sees its rivals so disorganised that it's almost thinking, well, we can afford to be slightly self-indulgent for a period without electoral consequence. No, it's really fascinating, and they're being very clever about it. You know, they're snaffling up policies that um, Labour put forward at the election. I noticed last week, I think it was um, something on immigration and working rights for immigrants, um, low pay, uh, something on minimum wage. Do you think George Osborne might well do something on non-DOMs? You know, they're, they're kind of closing down options for Labour, obviously now in a majority government, they're kind of closed out the Lib Dems. But I think what this whole Europe discussion shows is how potentially there is that sort of schism within the Tory party, um, which can easily be exposed if, if Cameron's not incredibly careful. It was interesting that at the weekend when those 50 Tory MPs came out and said, if renegotiation isn't comprehensive we're prepared to leave it wasn't john redwood or bill cash one of the older faces of the of the eurosceptic debate it was um steve baker mm. relatively young fresh-faced mp and i thought he did quite a good job actually at presenting the case and so maybe the eurosceptics are getting a little bit more sophisticated well, the in how they Cam- present themselves yeah and cameron i think has to be willing to give the impression at least in his negotiations that he would walk away if the, if it wasn't successful enough, if he didn't get enough from other countries. But the problem is, what what's the definition of successful? So mm-hmm. the, I think the Eurosceptics will have a completely different interpretation to number 10. And in fact, for many of them, I don't know how many of those 50 would count as actual outers, whatever the yeah. negotiations. Probably not all of them, but quite a, there's a, quite a chunk of Conservative backbenchers who just want to leave regardless, yeah. um, which obviously Cameron can never give them what they want. Helen Rumbelow, in, in the Times on Tuesday, we had a, a leading article which we, uh, as a newspaper, said the best tactic is for Mr Cameron to go to Brussels mm. with ambitious demands to get as much as he can from other European leaders. He should make it clear that if his demands are not met, he is willing to recommend to the British people that they should vote to leave the European Union. By not acting tough, he has signalled that he wants to remain inside the EU, even if his demands are a rebuffed. Whatever you think about the European debate, it is a slightly odd position, is it not, that David Cameron has got into. If you are a, a business that knows your customer is going to be loyal to you, whatever you do, you don't worry about them. But if you've got a customer who you know is thinking of taking their money elsewhere, you start to think about how you keep them happy. Is David Cameron doing enough to sort of worry European leaders into giving Britain reforms? Well, he is in a very strong position, isn't he? But, I mean, I was fascinated by that use of the word remain there and how powerful it was in changing people's opinions. Because I think a lot of the public at the moment are just feeling very change-averse. The prospect of uh, remaining sounds attractive, whereas being in Europe doesn't, you know. And I think this debate is quite similar to Scotland in a way. You were talking about that as well this week. In that um, it 
really boils down for people that don't have strong ideological opinions, which is probably the majority of the population. They are more worried about economics than anything, as mm. you say in the lead of the no, story. And that, that, that would be key for floating voters, won't it? There's, yes. there's people like me who will want to leave the European Union regardless for democratic and other reasons. Yes. But most people want to know, can we be, can we be prosperous? Will, yeah. will I lose my job or will my son you know, lose their job if we leave e Europe? Yeah. And there's certainly plenty of scare stories out there, yes. particularly from big business, that say... The economy could be in trouble outside the EU. And I think this comes down to exactly who should be leading both campaigns because it really comes down to who the floating voters are, I think the majority of the population, trust. Because they have to put an incredible amount of trust in kind of economic models that aren't tested. Mm. And that's a kind of, you know, they, they probably wouldn't really trust Nigel Farage to get that right. You need mm. someone that's got a, a lot of status, a lot of prestige, a lot of kind of credibility with the You're public. You're saying that Nigel Farage does not have that <laughs> <laughs> prestige. Um, I interviewed Douglas Carswell a couple of weeks ago and he thought James Dyson would be the best person, mm. not his own leader. Yeah. <laughs> is, and actually is, is he James would be Dyson an outer? He, he is, yeah. yeah. So he'd be, yeah. A, he'd be a very powerful voice. I think Helen's absolutely right, that kind of sense of the objective analysis. Because I feel it's a very scary thing, actually. In a normal general election, you're voting between two knowns. But mm. this is very sort of this voting in complete ignorance. Mm. It's completely untested, you know, and people have... I mean, I think even people think that, you know, the most credible economists really have no idea. Mm. And that's that's very powerful for the for the Remain camp, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. How um, much, Lucy Fisher, do you think businesses will get involved in this campaign? Because, for example, Waitrose took a position in the Scottish mm -hmm. referendum last uh, year in which they said, you know, they thought it was in the interests of their customers and their workforce, their partners, to stay inside the UK. And actually, you know, they, got, they received quite a backlash, you know, their own customers and partners in Scotland was divided yeah. as the rest of the country and I think Waitrose and other businesses won't rush to repeat that sort of taking a very public stance so I wonder if the opinion polls stay as they are businesses don't have to worry and they will only get involved if there looks like there's a, a real risk that Britain might vote to leave. That's interesting. I'm, I'm inclined to disagree, actually. I just think the stakes are so high that in the EU campaign, even I think the polls will narrow um, a bit. And I think we're going to see a scare campaign uh, on a level we've never experienced before. It will make Scotland look like a walk in the park, really. Um, that could backfire, though, couldn't it? If people feel that they are getting frightened without foundation. Well, I think I think that that's true. But we've also seen in the uh, general election just passed, the Conservatives ran a very negative campaign, warned about uh, the possibility of Labour allying with SNP, the danger to the economy, fragile recovery. And people voted for the status quo you know keep keep things as they are we're doing well enough it, it is it is going to be the case that businesses are, are going to speak out and it's yeah. for it's for the out campaign to really try and present a positive argument for leaving rachel you made lots of comments during the election campaign about the politics of fear dominating looks like we might have quite a lot more of that ahead definitely i think cameron's sort of wanting the hat trick you know he did scotland the general election and now it's going to be exactly the same tactics i think if you include George's the av referendum what is a quadruple oh, yes. trip <laughs> or something like that? george osborne apparently is already looking at commissioning a sort of study on the economic implications of leaving very mm. similar to the one they did in scotland and i think it does work short term but the question is, 
whether it works longer term. So in Scotland, I'm not sure now whether you can say that that kind of the, the politics of fear longer term has created a sort of settled, stable people accepting the outcome. It's almost, I think, exacerbated the sense of bias remorse that people feel they were somehow duped into voting against independence. And, and I think there's a danger with with Europe um, vote too, that if you use only the politics of fear, that people afterwards that doesn't settle the question for a yeah. generation, let okay. alone a few years. Let's move on to your own topic, um, Rachel <laughs> Sylvester. Uh, one thing that Labour Party does seem to be united on is all the candidates want to stay in the in the European Union, but otherwise they're trying to distinguish themselves from each other by using words like aspiration, equality, responsibility, choice. And you're, you're finding it all a bit unsatisfactory, as you say in your article in Tuesday's newspaper. Well, I think they're, they're using code words to mean something bigger. And I, I started off thinking about it. Why is this election campaign contest still kind of Blairites versus Brownites, basically 20 years after Tony Blair <laughs> won the leadership of the party, it mm. was still stuck in that prism. And there's an element, I think, that you sort of get a bit like the music you listen to, you get stuck in an era, you get stuck in your sort of youth or for a party, it's a successful era. But I think also the, the kind of Blair-Brown prism is because there's a kind of very fundamental divide between the people who think fairness, which is the sort of Labour driving force if you like should be about everyone being the same and the people who think actually fairness is about giving everyone a chance mm. so if you like it's the kind of in cliche terms it's the ladder up or the level playing field or whatever and I was really interested I was talking to James Morris who was Labour's pollster under Miliband for the last five years who've been doing some focus groups in the run-up to the election about how people felt about the the campaign and the values that Labour was putting forward and he asked them what they thought of equality which obviously was Miliband's big kind of defining purpose they didn't like it at all they thought it meant kind of levelling down everyone the same sounded mm. a bit communist it wasn't a word that appealed to them and he said it's a problem word the same with actually with fairness when the Conservatives talk about fairness voters liked it they said in the focus groups oh that you know it's sort of counterintuitive you do, at least they're trying whereas when labor they thought it was being fair to people not like them so fair to immigrants fair to benefit claimants mm. and i think labor has to be incredibly careful not to get stuck in a kind of language that it likes it, the party likes but that doesn't appeal to the electorate more generally and that actually i think most people have a sense of they do want the chance to succeed whether it's you know whatever the ghastly code word they don't want to feel actually that everyone's the same they want the chance for their kids to do as well as they can not to be the same as the kids next door H helen rumbler do you agree that this life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This was a fundamental problem for Labour. They, they looked like they weren't on the sides of people who wanted to get on. They had this anti-business emphasis. Do you, do you think that, rather than just the, the geekiness of Ed Miliband explained why they fell short oh, last month. totally, yes. And I remember in the run-up to the election, I was asking people around me how they were going to vote. And they were, you know, even the, the very poorest people in my neighbourhood were like, well, I want to earn lots of money, so I'm going to vote Tory, you know. Mm. But I was, I was thinking about this. I was um, wondering whether even the very name of Labour is symbolic of the problem now. Because... You know, so few people associate with the working classes mm. and so few people want to associate with them. You know, everyone wants to be middle class. And yet when I was looking at the Labour leadership candidates, they all still do talk about working people in this <laughs> way that really is trying to say working class without actually saying yeah. it. It's, it, the Tories you know, the, talk about hard-working people as well, yeah. but maybe they hard can get away. Hard-working people are not, are not the same people. as working people, are they? Yeah, I know. It's, it's another type of code, isn't it? But mm. people exactly. don't. I don't think people really like that. They, they say, I mean, I, this is, you know, not quite Labour, but Brian May, ridiculously, he talked about the working man, um, saying there's not enough talk about the working man. This is on Question Time. Yeah. And I was like, that's absurd. You know, no one's talked about it. No one... You know, outside politics talks about the working man um, for the last sort of half century. I think that's right. And who thinks of themselves as a working person? You're a yeah. you're a journalist. You're a you know computer programmer. You're a nurse, a lawyer. You're not a working yeah. person. Well, they like to say they're for working people. It's like, <laughs> and, and as opposed to who? Um, yeah. uh, um, Lucy, yeah. Lucy Fisher. Their need to appeal to working people is is symptomatic of their links to the unions. I think there's, there is still a working class pride uh, in Britain, and it's it's Labour's problem that they're losing some some of that that part of the electorate to UKIP, who feel disaffected that under New Labour the party shifted far too uh, too much to the right. But I agree with you that again, working people sounds patronising. You know, we're all middle class now. To another John, swathe of John the John Prescott isn't. He's still insisting. He's He's mm-hmm. uh, working class. No, he's <laughs> middle class now. He was. Did he? Yes, I thought he yeah. said that he was still. Well, I'm out of date. I'll shut up. <laughs> Just because he's lost his two jags. Yes, he yes. is. <laughs> yes. But, but I also agree, Rachel, that aesthetically, this, this problem of this alienating language is totally maddening. And I think, again, that's symbolic of Labour's inclination towards slight romanticism. They like to look inward and talk about values. And in a sense, Miliband didn't lack for ideas and there was this whole talk about you know remodeling capitalism and pre-distribution but it didn't amount to a coherent vision or is, is, plausible retail is that offers. Partly, that's the problem though Lucy is that too many people on the left spend too much time reading Thomas Piketty's book on yes. inequality they spend too much time reading Polly Toynbee and Owen Jones in the garden and somehow they've over intellectualized politics yeah I absolutely. They spend too much time on twitter where they are with people of like mind having their views 
reinforced. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, a dose of sort of conservative hard-headedness, not least, you know, changing the party rules to get rid of floundering leaders would be a really good thing. Well, there is this idea, Rachel Sylvester, isn't there, that they will have some sort of election in three years' time to a referendum on their existing Mm. leader. Isn't that just sort of a recipe for chaos? um, Well, I mean, you you could say that the Conservatives will have a new leader at the election. David Cameron's made that very clear. And I think there is a case for Labour a year out from an election or whatever saying, OK, giving almost like an either an affirmation ba- ballot mm. for the leader who wins this time or get rid of them and get a new person. Um, doesn't that, I think doesn't they that need mean that the leader aims has a sort of three-year cycle which they've got to perform over rather than knowing that they've got five years to get Well, you'd hope right. that they would perform over the three years anyway. I think there's actually a good... I think it was Ian Duncan Smith who said you're set in your first hundred days as mm. a leader and I think there's quite a lot in he might, that. He might have regretted saying that. And just briefly <laughs> before we... Um, move on to our third and final topic who out of the Labour leadership candidates has impressed each of you most so far or you're shaking your head Helen <laughs> none, none of them impressed you at all so far well I, they're impressive people in their own ways of course but none of them grabbed my you know attention no one's inspiring you no no one's inspiring me no I feel quite depressed about it actually is there someone like Chaka Amuna who's not in the race that you wish was there there's a kind of mythical creature out there, isn't there, that we all wish would sort of join, but we're not quite sure who it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think and whoever it is would look quite different. They have to be young and they, they, have, they have to have something fresh and exciting about them, which, you know, we're, we're looking for the barrack of, of yeah. Britain, but, yeah, not there yet. David Aronovich backed um, Liz Kendall last week in his column. Um, Rachel, you share that sympathy for her? I think out of what what she's saying is right. I think what's not yet clear is whether she's kind of got the gravitas, charisma, whatever it is, to break through and, and articulate it and communicate it. But I think in terms of what she's saying, arguing, she's in the right position. She's yeah. in the position where Labour needs to be. Lucy? Yeah, I'm totally inclined to agree. She came and spoke to uh, a group of Westminster journalists over lunch several weeks ago. Uh, and I was impressed with her candour, which I think we've seen straight from the off. She was the first one out of the starting block three days after the election. And when she was asked, are you running? She just said yes. And I think that that sort of straight answers to straight questions. Although, any, although, although anyone well. who watched her on Andrew Marr on Sunday, she wasn't really giving straight answers. to. He kept asking her about would she support reform of benefit rules across the European Union. And I felt she kept ducking the question. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, but but also, you know, it's only been sort of a matter of a month since the election. We can't expect leadership candidates to have a whole menu of reforms and their whole programme worked out already. So I'm inclined to be a bit more lenient. Do you feel any twinge of sorrow for Ed Miliband, by the way, Rachel? There, everyone seems to be dumping all over his campaign and had this sort of slightly absurd, I thought, story in Monday's Independent, where Harriet Harman was saying she'd produced research which said found Labour voters really relieved that their party hadn't <laughs> won. Now, I would have, if I was Mrs Miliband, I think I would have hidden the papers um, that morning from him. I think, absolutely, I think on a human level, it's an absolutely brutal experience fighting an election and losing, and you do have to feel incredibly sorry for him as a person. I think the problem was not Ed Miliband himself or all that bacon sandwich business. It was his programme and his, you know, he tried to fight from the left mm. and it, it just didn't work. I, I mean, obviously, at a personal level, 
you have to feel for him. But at a political level, the party also has to learn from his enormous mistake. And you're absolutely sure that this is the reason, because you could say Labour lost because of his sort of poor prime ministerial ratings, it could have been the SNP surge, it could have been the strength of the economy, or it could have been this left-wing set of policies. I just wonder that the Labour Party might have rushed to try and understand why it lost and might be making some wrong judgments. The um, failure to deal with the economic competence question right at the beginning, Mm. which is partly one example of the sort of left-wing programme, was the kind of killer blow they should have admitted straight away that they'd spent too much. That's what the voters thought. You can't pretend, tell the voters they're wrong. And then that it was the combination of that, which kind of basically did for them, with Ed Miliband failing to kind of persuade people he was a good leader, but kind of allying to this kind of vague sense of everything was going to be too left-wing. People yeah. just didn't trust it. Yeah. OK, well, our third and final um, topic is the one that you suggested for us, Helen, Run below. You were disliking Labour's talk of working people, but you quite like the idea of flexible working people. Uh, tell well, us, tell us, tell us why. Uh, well, no, actually, no. I think uh, <laughs> I'm kind of arguing against flexible working in a weird sort of way. In the in the paper on Tuesday, we have um, the chair of Ernst and Young who writes a kind of lovely piece in favour of flexible working, which all sounds great, and everyone always bangs on constantly about how great flexible working is. But the research that's coming out of America now shows that flexible working is still penalised. And if you are the sort of person that, you know, is associated with flexible working, you're the sort of person that people think of as a bit of a slacker, Mm. especially women. Um, I was reading in the New York Times last week that someone said um, they'd done some research. I'll put a link, by the way, to this article, which is well worth a read. For those Times subscribers listening, if you go to the times.co.uk slash Common Central, I'll put some articles um, up that provide background to what we're talking about. But this particular quote was, you know, if a man leaves at 5pm, it's assumed to be going off to an appointment. And if a woman leaves at 5pm, she's assumed to be going back to look after her kid or something who's poorly from school. And actually, yeah, that that piece in the New York Times, it actually relates to a larger body of work, which is what I'm the nub of my argument, which is there's a major American consulting firm, and it's not named, but it's implied that it's one of the really big ones. And they realised they had a very big problem with retaining women. 90% of their partners were men and women were quitting like crazy. So they brought in the, the Harvard Business School and they said, in exchange for you sort of sorting us out, you could have all our data. So they were given access to all the, you know, performance reviews and the salaries and everything and the working hours. And they sort of found some really interesting things. The first thing was that men were just as upset about the brutal working practices as women. There's no difference there, which surprised the bosses of this mm-hmm. firm <laughs> who said that men just suck it up and they don't worry about it. But the second thing was that women and men reacted really differently. So women were much more inclined to ask for flexible working to go part-time or to like reduce their status in some way. And they got really penalised for it when it came to performance review or whatever. Whereas the men, a third of the men, which is a lot, I think, according to these researchers, just worked flexibly or just reduced their hours without telling anyone. So that meant they went completely rogue 
They were basically lying about where they were. They were faking the hours. They were, you know, they were really going off grid in a way that you would think was quite irresponsible, actually. Mm. But when it came to performance review, they did at least as strongly as everyone else. And, you know, they got away with it. And they were, you know, they were kind of doing it completely unofficially. And I think those men were basically smarter about it. And they realized that, you know, it's better to ask forgiveness and permission or whatever it is should, 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 should we just be moving to a simple system whereby people have objectives sales targets number of articles to write or whatever it is and it doesn't really matter how many hours they put in they've just got to fulfill their yeah i their mean objectives. I think obviously it doesn't work if you work in a shop and you're involved in yeah. um, managing the tills or the or looking after customers but there are plenty of jobs where Maybe we should move entirely to objectives. And I think policy has just not caught up with that. I mean, we've seen that with maternity leave. Basically, when Labour extended women's maternity leave, they kind of stigmatised and penalised women in the workplace. It was a kind of unintended consequence because women were taking these massive maternity leaves and men weren't. And then it was women that kind of took the hit when it came to their careers. And, that you know, it's policy just doesn't catch up with that. And I think... You know, he's well-intentioned, the chair of Ernst & Young, but he's not, it's not actually a very sophisticated take on the reality, I don't think. Uh, Rachel, what's your um, take on this flexible working? I think it's really fascinating. I think you're absolutely right. What matters is what you produce and your output. I think that we've got to be really careful. This is, a, this is a subject that applies to certain kinds of jobs. As you say, if you work in a factory or on the shop floor or many, many jobs, you are kind of tied to your hours and your desk. You clock in, you clock out. You clock in, you clock out. But there are lots of jobs where that's not the case and you should be able to produce the number of articles you're supposed to produce and or whatever it is in your profession. You can tell two journalists (laughs) with their example. Exactly. I think there's another interesting thing about the role of kind of social media and the internet in particularly working mothers that you can be in the playground you can be beside the football pitch you can be anywhere and you're you're kind of keeping an eye on stuff you're working yeah. you've got access to your emails which you're is good at and Twitter, bad of course which is both good and bad so there's no escape mm. but on the other hand it means you are totally flexible i think technology has made flexibility a kind of a reality in the way it never could have been in the past. In the days when you had to be in the office at your desk to read your, to see your computer, there were no emails. You had to be at your landline in order to receive a call. Hmm. Those are long gone. You can now be on your mobile anywhere and accessing all the information you need to do your job. Well, Lucy Fisher, I was chasing you at, I think, 10.30pm <laughs> last yes. night for your script for today's podcast. And within two minutes, you'd replied. And um, I think it was a particularly busy day Monday for you and the politics desk with the, with the Europe uh, uh, U-turn from the Prime Minister. But you know, th- this is the problem, isn't it? What, what does flexible working mean when you are always contactable by text or Twitter or email or mobile phone? I think one of the problems with flexibility that that comes with technology is each person needs to work out their own routine. Um, My boyfriend, for example, gets really annoyed with me at the weekend, constantly on my phone, and I have a bad habit of checking my email just Mm. by reflex almost. In many ways, it should be this, and it is this hugely liberating force that uh, allows us to travel around, call people, 
conference calls, Skype, email, uh, using Twitter to sort of catch up on information. But on the other hand, you need to learn to have a an off button. Mm. Uh, and do you can you do you switch your phone off, to, or does your boyfriend switch it <laughs> off for you for three hours or four hours, or can you do that, or are you addicted and? Well, I've I've tried to become um, a bit better at it, and I also think that there's there's a strong argument. You know, in the UK we have this huge productivity crisis, and yet we work really long hours. And, and seeing Helen's topic, I was just looking up the Prosperity Index run by the Legatum Institute, which shows that for two years running, Norway has come in as the most sort of happy, um, prosperous country with citizens enjoying the highest levels of well-being. Um, and they have some of the, uh, I think they're ranked in the top five for productivity in the world and have some of the shortest hours in the world. It was something like 27.5 hours mm. a week, long weekends, uh, long holiday allowances, long maternity and paternity leave. Obviously, our economic conditions are not exactly the same as Norway, but there is, to my mind, a slight Scandinavian dream around going to your desk or choosing your hours to work and then using those productively working hard and concentrating rather than sort of thinking, oh, well, I can always sort of keep up doing things maybe, later in the day. Maybe Norwegians spend less time at their desk looking at Facebook. I wonder whether that's Possibly. <laughs> but final word to you, Helen. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I, it was striking me, you were talking about politics and I was thinking, is this a political thing? And I was thinking, actually, it's quite a conservative thing in a way. The idea that you are responsible for your own hours and um, you're kind of decentralising the problem you know, to individuals. I kind of thought, yeah, it is a sort of, could almost be a conservative policy there. <laughs> Trust the people. Yeah. Well, great conservative clarion call down the ages. Yeah. Well, Helen, thank you. This is your first podcast with us. It's, I look forward I've to you thrilled. coming back again soon. And uh, to Lucy and Rachel, thank you very much as well. To Dave McGuire, my producer, most of all to you for listening. We will be back next week. Goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.